0: Hey, this is Sayyam Bhutani, and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science, a podcast for data science enthusiasts where I interview practitioners, researchers, and cagglers about their journey, experience, and talk all things about data science. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Time Data Science Show. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Russ Fulfinger, who's the Director of Scientific Discovery and Genomics at SAS, a department which he had started and he leads the research and development of JMP and SAS software solutions in the domain of genomics and clinical trials. In this interview, we talk all about Russ's journey into the field, how has stats and software development evolved over the years. Russ is also a Kaggle Grandmaster in the competitions tier. We talk a lot about Kaggle, his approach to Kaggle, his his viewpoints on Kaggle and best advices to new big new joiners slash beginners. This interview is an amazing intersection of statistics, data science and data science applied to Kaggle and the real world. We also talk a lot about Kaggle. As a platform for learning data science and applying your skills, how to get better at Kaggle and data science, broadly speaking. So, thank you to Russ for sharing all of those amazing advices. A quick reminder to the audience this will have manually checked and uploaded subtitles. So, please remember to enable the subtitles on YouTube or go watch the video on YouTube if you're a non native English speaker. For now, here's my conversation with Russ all about statistics, data science, and Kaggle please enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today I have the privilege on the show to have another statistician one of the best alive today of the ranks, if I may say so, of Leland Wilkinson, who I've already had on the show, a data scientist, top Kagler. These are not three different persons. This is the same person, Dr. Russ Fullfinger. Russ, thank you so much for joining me on the Chai Time Data Science Podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Siam, and uh, welcome from North Carolina here. I I do need to apologize. I was helping my sister-in-law yesterday with a construction project, and I had this sticky glue like substance still on my hands. So I didn't want to scare any viewers if, if they see something I, I happen to make a gesture.
0: <laughs> I, I think you look great.
1: <laughs> and we <laughs> can do
0: some deep learning magic, hopefully. <laughs> there oh there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to start by uh, talking about how you got interested in data science. Today you're the director of scientific discovery and genomics at SAS. Uh, if I may you've been involved in the field for almost close to half a century now. Could you tell the listeners how you got started? Was what you studied uh, during your university days now? Is it data science? Because it it was branded as branded as stats during your days.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't I'm not quite to the half a century yet. But, um yeah, it's 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 real we're really in this amazing time. And I, I feel so fortunate and blessed uh, to kind of kind of be where I am. And I think I mean, my career path has been really simple and canonical. I pretty much went from kindergarten straight to the PhD and then hired on here at SAS. And I've been here at SAS for 30 years. So that, that's, <laughs> maybe we could, we could end the show right there if we wanted to. <laughs> um, but um, over that time period, though, it's just been uh, just a really amazing series of changes. And I again, I feel fortunate throughout that whole path. I'm mean, going to have a very loving uh, home atmosphere with with. A mom and dad who just did everything they could to encourage, encourage us. And I've got two wonderful sisters. We didn't have a lot growing up. We grew up I grew up in Ohio, north central part. But a great school system there that I went all the way through. And we, I had teachers that let me. I was pretty pr- proficient in mathematics. And they allowed me to kind of go at my own pace, which was really awesome. And then I did an undergraduate degree in math at Liberty University. And then PhD in statistics at NC State. Uh, And the uh, connection here at SAS really was somewhat serendipitous. I really did not know about SAS at all when I came to NC State and it just turned out my, my wife, uh, we decided to go through graduate school together. She's a molecular biologist, PhD. And so we had a nice period there where we were going through grad school together. Um, But I was, I was one year ahead. And so I finished up early and I was like, well, I think I'll go get some computing experience this place called SAS down the street looks pretty reasonable. and they hired me on and it's been, it's just been an amazing ride ever since.
0: Well, wow. uh, talking about your traditional route, if I may, why was it important to complete a PhD uh, after, right after your bachelor's? Why did you go along the route of research during your days?
1: I think for me, just cause may, maybe I, in a way I'm just like, I'm just so well suited to it. I, I always was like a good test taker. I like school. I liked the classroom setting, you know, I always asked a lot of questions, and again, just fortunately, I just always seemed to have really great teachers and professors so I, it was really enjoyable to be around them and to learn from them and so for me it was it was a very easy choice i uh you know most i I get the feeling it's not as easy for i'd say most people for me, it really was a very easy and natural path and it it seemed to make sense just to keep going um and you know. And again, I didn't, at each stage throughout there, um, I was able to pick up kind of new pieces. Like, for example, I didn't, even coming out with a PhD, I, did, I didn't have a lot of strong computing experience. But then here's SAS, you know, and then at the time, they're just an incredible, incredible company. They've been an incredible company to work for. In fact, I'm saying the studio that you see me in now is just one of our facilities. And a shout out to the, to the studio guys here who are uh, helping me record this. Uh, But just the kind of thing we've just over the years, the company has been extremely successful growing. We've got an incredibly nice campus here. And so um, for me, it's just, in a way I feel, again, I just feel, I feel kind of lucky in a sense, just because, you know, being born here in the United States and just kind of had this nice little path. Uh, I'm really not that far from home and it just worked out nicely for me. So I do do want, I do feel a sense of responsibility and want to try to give back and help, help folks around the world. And thankfully with the internet now, the world is kind of shrinking and we can we can conduct an interview like this halfway around the world pretty amazing
0: yeah for sure i want to talk about uh, your research your, you did your phd in statistics could you tell us more about your research and how was it like studying during those days because now i would shamefully cheat with my smartphone under my desk how did you pick up your <laughs> concepts during your days
1: yeah, you're right. The internet was just getting going. This was my PhD years were the late 1980s. And I do remember in my apartment, my little small apartment near campus, I was able to connect online and we literally had, I think it was 320 bauds. So you could literally see the characters coming okay. across the screen. Um, so it was just after that. I didn't have to do anything on punch cards. Thankfully, it wasn't that early, but just right <laughs> after that. And then I was so excited where I could I could I'd have a little data set and I could submit some SAS code to this. We had a, a central computing center called uh, Tri- the Tuck, TUCC Triangle University's Computing Center, and I was able to submit jobs to that, kind of like kind of like our early AWS at the time, <laughs> but but only only running at, at 320 baud. Uh, but I was able to submit number you know submit a little little piece of code and get some results back, uh, but. My 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 dissertation was actually all theory. Um, statisticians we often like to study properties of estimates as the sample size grows to infinity. We call it you know asymptotic theory, and the, the 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 two main theorems that we have are like the laws of large numbers and then the central limit theorem. And I was able for a certain class of models, I was able to derive some rules for bounding the rates. So kind of. You, you, there's kind of uh, bounding rules that you want to do to help as, as, the, as data grow larger. It kind of gives you some rule of, rules of thumb for how many parameters you'd want to use based on the number of observations that you have. All theory, I don't think it's, it's ever really been used much. In fact, I, I had, a, this, was a, I had a, this was my only kind of poor experience with publishing. I, I wrote up all my, my dissertation and a couple of papers and submitted it. And unfortunately, I drew what I consider a fairly adversarial referee, who who sat on the papers for a year and a half. We heard zero, and this guy was stalling. He wouldn't he wouldn't reply, and my, I'm speculating maybe he must have been friends with the editor or something, and they just. They kind of sat on the papers for a long time. And the crazy thing is, by, by that time, I had already hired on its ass. I'd learned other areas of statistics and published other papers. So, so By the time I got the reports back, I was like, ah, I don't, this isn't even worth it at the time. And I kind of moved on. Uh, but beyond that, it's been, uh, I do, even though despite some of the problems with the peer review publication process, I do think overall, it's a great way to disseminate uh, you know, knowledge gains and research that people are doing. Although I must confess, I, do li- I like also like the computer science model of, say, submitting to conferences. That's another nice way, I think. And of course, archive now and things like that um, are, are ways to get around if you do. So anyone out there you know, trying to publish, don't be discouraged if you happen to draw some, some bad referees for one, re- one reason or another that the process is somewhat subjective, I'd say that 's great advice,
0: uh, talking about knowledge, I think uh, you're still a active learner, one of the best on kaggle what 's your favorite observation of the change of learning methods over the years, and maybe uh, maybe one like and one dislike towards how we learn has evolved over the, over your uh, career
1: yeah uh, that's a that 's a good question and I realize even though I was a good I would consider myself a pretty good book learner or classroom classical classroom style learning. My favorite way to learn is just to have a problem, you know, be, have it, literally have a problem that focuses your mind. And this is where Kaggle is just so appealing, you know, that they're able to set up a some type of predictive modeling problem from a sponsor. And then your whole goal is to, is to solve that problem. So you just bring, you start, then you go on a big search. You go, you look to find anything that you can possibly imagine that might have bearing on solving that problem and with that as your goal but then it also helps you filter away a lot of things because there's so much out there right yeah. it's overwhelming the amount of material that's out there but with a with a problem focus you can see a, a certain amount of theory although it might be interesting you're like i don't that's not going to help me right now I, i'll make a note that it's there but i'll let it go but now here's something it's like oh i see immediately how i can use that and man if you if you do that you know several times over I feel like you're you actually you know your knowledge kind of grows like a, organically in almost a tree form where and then you you once you've used a method and applied it to a problem, you've, you've often have it for life. So I'm really big on the, kind of the prop, a problem focused approach to learning, and problem solving, I think is just maybe at the heart of, of what we do. Um, and for me, anyway, that's just I, I but just my observations of others. I think that's a, a fairly appealing way way to learn.
0: I think uh, the other thing that internet has imposed on us is the imposter syndrome. Uh, beginners like me really get scared of maybe this Kaggle competition is not enough for me. Maybe this problem is completely out of my reach. How do you think uh, people like us should approach any problem? For example, a new Kaggle competition where we have 3000 people and hundreds of grandmasters going on the competition?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good point. And there is, there certainly is a social aspect. And man, it is a. It's a. Extre- the Kaggle competitions now are s- so extremely competitive. Uh, you have, you, you, in a way, you have to have a dose of humility about where you're at, you know. And if if you are a relative newcomer, uh, well, and I, I, I went through it myself though, because uh, you know, my first Kaggle competition, I, I was a fairly new, fresh PhD in statistics. I went in. I'm just like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna win this thing, no problem. You know, these <laughs> bunch of bunch of joke joker data science guys. And I literally, I, I just, you know, I kind of got my tail kicked. Did, I tried everything I could think of, did horribly. And I, I believe most, a lot of the top kagglers have gone through an experience like this early on. And then you just have to like suck it up and say, okay, you know, let's, let's reassess here. Eat some crow, be, hum, be humble about it, reflect on what happened. Where, and then, man, you know, keggle is just a gold mine of, of knowledge in terms of like, and most, most, most top winners or top performers are often very gracious in sharing their solutions. And that's just an incredible way, you know, maybe that's a good, that's all, and then think about the problem solving method I mentioned before, you know, you just pour your heart and soul into a problem and you still can't solve it very well. Maybe you don't finish so well in a Kaggle competition, but then man, go, go look at what the winners did. Talk about a a rich learning experience. You can just see you're like, oh, you know that's what they did, and I've had many times where I've actually been very close to what the winner did, but then I decided for whatever reason to go a different way and I missed you know I missed the kind of the magic as it were, and I think that's pretty common and the The other thing is just to be realistic about Kaggle you know I mean we're talking you know if, if you sort the scores, I mean often they're separated down in the third or fourth decimal place, you know so the 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 true difference between finishing fiftieth and finishing you know two hundred and fiftieth is likely me- negligible. So you shouldn't put put your whole personal value on, on, the, on your on your Kaggle ranking.
0: <laughs> but the upside also is the leaderboard, as you said, doesn't lie at all. People from anywhere can join for free compete and maybe even walk away with the prize. I know a robot AGI, the 18 year old Kaggle Grandmaster who's been winning competition even before he was 18. So anyone who's in high school has done a PhD from any walk of life can come to Kaggle if they're interested in participating.
1: I know that's just—it's just an amazing kudos to Anthony and the team there for this. That's just a, a kind of just a brilliant, brilliant platform that takes advantage of the modern internet or modern data science. They now offer computing for facilities for free. It's just really amazing platform, and it's—it's it's had a very positive effect on my life personally over the last several years. I almost—I feel like I'm almost kind of back in school again. You know, just learning and and having a lot of fun and. I do think that a really interesting aspect to it is it does it does it send, tend to appeal to males more than females and I'm still not quite sure why I think maybe men tend to be a little more competitive as it were or just generally speaking um, and so, and maybe we're just so naive and and so cheap that we love to see our name on the leaderboard, you know, <laughs> or, or someone else jumps out. It's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get ahead of that guy. So, uh, I think women tend to be much more sensible and, and view that kind of kind of action, the motivations, as a little bit silly.
0: But I'd I'd also drop a few honorable mentions, maybe after the interview, to women caglars, also the ones that are there, also are in the top of the leaderboard when they get down to competing.
1: I know. You should definitely try to interview some of them because there are some br- there are brilliant women data scientists out there. I know here at SAS, I'd, th- I'd say it's roughly 50-50. And I just thought, I mean, to me, I, I love having a colleague that almost just thinks in a orthogonal directions from what I do because then you can you can really make progress on problems where each of us are kind of limited by what we know and the techniques that we have. And it's easy to get kind of stuck in a in a little intellectual cul-de-sac, as it were. And a, a colleague with a different background and perspective can often just pull you out of that and, and set you on your way and achieving better performance.
0: Yeah. So we discussed about Kaggle. Kaggle is really the home of data science. I don't think we need to debate that many people join it to become maybe get a taste of data science or become a good data scientist, maybe a good da- applied data scientist. Why did you uh, join Kaggle? Why did you started uh, competing on Kaggle? Um,
1: yeah, I actually got – so I've spent my career working here, professional software development, and I've got – I work in the the Jump division of SAS, uh, JMP, which is a nice uh, point-and-click interface for for handling mostly tabular data. Um, And then my group, my individual group, we work on two vertical products called Jump Genomics and Jump Clinical. And we had just recently finished with – Jump Genomics has a predictive modeling framework within it with, with nice cross-validation uh, methods and things like that. We just kind of wrapped up a redesign of that and we were looking for problems to, to try, try it on. And it turned out, I don't know if you've heard of there's another competitive data science organization called DREAM, uh, D-R-E-M, I haven't heard word, sorry. D-R-E-A-M. I think IBM is involved closely with them and Sage Networks. They put on competitions mostly focused on science And so that, since I was already, we were doing a lot of genomics uh, things, we came across a competition where they were, we were predicting uh, prostate cancer survival based on biomarkers or actually clinical, clinical data as well. And this looked like a nice problem and it turned out to be a competition. And I was like, oh, let's try this competition with our new framework. And uh, we actually ended up doing pretty well with that, but that dream, the dream competitions tend to be a fair bit smaller than Kaggle ones. And then so I can't remember exactly how I found out about Kaggle. Somebody told me I got on there and it was it was at that point I was like, oh my goodness, this looks this looks so incredible. And at that point I was hooked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so is through your first failure on Kaggle, did you decide to accept the challenge? CPMP calls it a legal drug. Is that when you got you knew you got addicted to Kaggle?
1: Yeah, well, and for me, again, maybe this was a bit of a fortunate timing. This was right when XG XGBoost was coming onto the scene. And you know, uh, Anthony, in, in your interview with him, mentioned there's kind of this transition period where, for a while, random forests was were dominating a lot of the data science competitions, but then when XGBoost came out, and the X, there was a GBM, there was a GBM module in there in between where that that was st- it was clearly starting to offer uh, performance and competitive gains, and that's what. So I so I did like, like I mentioned, you know, I had that first humbling experience. I looked back and I went to look at the winners. And I believe the top five people all use XGBoost. And I was like, what, you know, okay, what is this? I didn't even know about it. I was like, I was using all the, a lot of classical statistical methods, regression, and, um, the, the, you know, various various techniques that I was aware of. And I, I really, I, I was familiar with basic decision trees, but these boosted trees seem to offer a little bit more in terms of functionality. And so my very next competition, I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try XGBoost on this one. And I didn't even realize, but I ended up getting up my, I think I got a solo gold in my first, my first, my my second Kaggle competition. It was the Rossman one. Um, And I just, I mean, I remember that competition. I was just amazed at how well XGBoost worked. You know, I was doing my, I had a lot of servers running with different cross validation schemes. I was doing some feature engineering, trying to really make sure my model was going to generalize. And then I was, I was so, I think maybe that was a defining moment because I think on the public leaderboard, I was like 35th, you know. Right, and then when the when the private was revealed, I jumped to fourth. And I was like, oh, that was so, I mean, I literally jumped out of a chair when I saw that <laughs> happening. My wife was like, what, what's going on in there? Yeah? And I was like, come look at that. So it was really, you know, I think maybe that was a bit of a one of my Kaggle defining moments. And then after that, it was just like, oh, okay, I'm I'm going crazy now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you you definitely hold a record rate in meddling. Uh, I'll, I'll mention the figures for the audience. I think it's one of the best on Kaggle. You've had 42% top 10 finishes. 61% gold medals and 85% rate of winning a medal on entered competitions, not on any other competition. What's your secret? Is, is it your sad background? Is it, is there any other secret that led to this?
1: Um, yeah. And thank you for doing, it. I, I don't, I've never tried to compute those those ratios and there are a couple duds in there. So they're probably, I mean, realistically, it might even be better. Uh, but maybe it's somewhat my personal mindset where I tend to like, I tend to be pretty focused. So I, I only ever do one competition at a time. And when I, when I commit to it, I, I mean, this is kind of a philosophy of my whole life. Usually when I commit, you know, when I get interested in something, I want to do it really well. And I'm, I'm willing just to do everything, you know, just pour my heart and soul into it, do background research, try to, try to remove other distractions that are preventing me and, you know, just, just focus, just dive as deep as I possibly can on a certain problem. And I think for something like Kaggle, that helps. Uh, where, you know, I'm not, I'm not a new competition might come out. I'm like, Nope, I'm not even gonna look at it. You know, I'm not even, I'm just going to stay focused on what I'm doing. And I think that likely gives me maybe a little bit of an edge over the, maybe the typical Kaggler that just likes to jump around and try different things. Or maybe there, I know there's only a few guys I'm aware of that can really do multiple competitions well. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm one of them. I'm just too kind of single-minded, I feel to, 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 to pull that off, um, and so that I guess that, that's probably where, where, where it comes from to a certain degree. And I am inspired. Like there have, there are certain competitors. I, I've noticed several from Japan say, and then a few others around the world who they just seem to have this mindset where they, they don't even submit that often, right? They'll they maybe do one <laughs> or two to get to get a benchmark and then you don't hear from them, but man, there they are at the private leaderboard right up there, you know, because they've been, you know, they, they don't get caught up in the leaderboard. Drama and you know trying to see their name in lights early on, they they tend not to overfit. Yeah, and uh, you can tend to do better then in the end. I feel like those are those are pretty general principles that that most people can work off of.
0: I'm sure it, uh, winning competitions takes a lot of focus. There's a lot of talent and skill as well, but like you mentioned, it's it's a lot of focus for you focusing on one single competition. What competitions do you usually like to enter? We'll shortly talk about your recent gold finish, but what competitions grab your attention and which ones do you like to participate in?
1: Uh, well, w- you know, with the statistics background and that naturally the, ta- the tabular ones uh, are the, the, the most natural ones to me. That's when I think of, when I just think of data. That's t- what I tend to think of as a, as a nice table of numbers. So those are always a consideration. And I, I was fortunate. I was thinking back to my graduate school days at NC State, and I, I was actually surrounded by some of the best applied time series statisticians in the world at that time. Sastry Pantula, Peter Bloomfield. My PhD advisor, Ron Gallant, was a really well-known econometrician. Um, We had Dave Dickey. He's got a famous statistical test for unit roots. These guys are just my professors, you know, but I I realized looking back, and for example, Professor Pantula's class, I mean, literally one semester course, I had a book, a book's worth of notes, you know, that, I mean, he killed us. But but he was an expert in uh, kind of classic, all the classic ARIMA models and things like that. And we just we understood those things inside and out. And then Peter Bloomfield was an expert on the frequency domain side. So we immediately would do a Fourier transform and learn all the all the beauties of of working in the frequency domain. So I, I feel very comfortable with time series. And even though the, the amazing thing to me is how well the boosted tree methods work on time series, which intuitively you wouldn't think that would be true because trees tend to just to, to in, you know, they, they tend to interpolate and shrink. Yeah the various cells but boosted trees are actually it, it, this does rely on good feature engineering you actually have to you know you've got to put in well-formed lag lag features and other nice things um, but probably my my favorite most comfortable competition would be like a tabular time series uh but may i tell you i did i have done several image based ones which are just to me they were just unbelievably fun and incredible that you could take you know, these modern deep learning networks. I had access to some nice uh, Linux servers here that I could just get them cranking away and just <laughs> yeah. learning all the all the crazy architectures and PyTorch. I, I you know, did, did Keras, uh, TensorFlow, PyTorch, trying to learn those frameworks. And then I stuck, I'd say my favorite's probably PyTorch right now. It seems to strike the right balance between, you know, encapsulation, but also giving you some flexibility to go in and and try to play with the networks a little bit, which I think, if you're going to gain that edge in a competition, you've got to. You may want to go in and you can do pretty well just with canned networks. But then, if you're really going to going to nail it, you often have to go in and and think hard about the problem and then make some make some tweaks and adjustments. And that's so much fun. It, you're almost like net network engineering, I'd call it, where you can go in. You know, if you had a, got a good set of features and then a then a a tuned network, that's a, that's a formula for success.
0: Definitely. There's this balance that you just mentioned about uh, knowing the tools, knowing how to apply them and knowing the theory. And I think right now beginners get stuck in the trap of continuing to learn the theory. H- how do you suggest this strike the balance? Because there, there's tremendous amount of knowledge out there. And it's, it's put out it's packaged in a way that you'll always feel that you there's something else that you need to learn before you can become better, for example.
1: I know it's a tough problem. And you know, we all, we all only have 24 hours in a day and a certain amount of brain cycles that we're going to cycle through. So it's worth, you know, you got to kind of see where you're at at the moment. You know, if you're, if you're just, if you're just hell bent on performing well in a certain competition, you may, you may decide to let some of that, that theory just go by the wayside and just say, I am just literally going to only do things that are going to help me predict better and, and climb the leaderboard. Whereas like for example, for me, this past year, 2019, I didn't compete as heavily as I as I had in in years before, and I I actually it was a little more enjoyable for me. I decided I just took a few competitions, a couple of them I didn't even actually even compete, but I I, I still followed along, and I was I was I was a more in a research mind where I had some things I was working on here at SAS using that data to try some things, and for me personally, I get I easily get sidetracked with a. You know, I see something in a problem where it's like, oh, now I want to implement software that we can use here at SAS to offer our customers. And so that can be, a, for me personally, not, but, but that's part of my job. So I'm able to kind of leverage research questions like that into work. Uh, but you have to, each, each competition and problem you're dealing with is different. And you have to kind of keep a, an internal sense of what your, what your overall objectives are at that time in your life. You know and your other responsibilities to your family and, and other ways you're balancing your time but there's you're like you said there's so many interesting <laughs> theoretical research questions and it's very and sometimes it's like maybe maybe you're you're like hey I'm, I'm not so worried about doing as well in this competition i just want to learn this theory And i think that's perfectly fine why not you know and that if that's where you are in your life at that point do it uh and you know chase your curiosity in the end maybe that's a that's a more satisfying path and I think it is good. I, I, I've had trouble, a couple of competitions where I've, I think I've probably definitely overdone it in terms of, and my wife has had, she threatened like an inter, in my family an inter, intervention, you know, uh, where they might need to go, like, take your take your fingers off the keyboard, Russ. You know, we got, we got, we got to go talk about this. Um, and so I've been trying to strike a little bit more of a balance more recently. And, and I have, I, I am fortunate where my children are now grown and out of the house. So I, I have had a little extra time to spend on things, but still, there's still a danger of overdoing it. So I, I, I do have to struggle. I struggle with that at times, for sure.
0: <laughs> but you mentioned you're allowed to Kaggle at work. I think that's one of your secrets. Is it? <laughs>
1: I, I have been able to. And I've been just been so fortunate here at SAS, um, just throughout my career. I've always been in R and D. So, and we do we take you know the R the R we take the R seriously, and a lot of that research involves, you know, spending some time with the problem. Trying to look at what the state of the art is, leveraging that back. And I've been fortunate to have a series of really great managers. Back, my, my boss now is one of the billionaire co-owners of the company, and he just gives me pretty much complete freedom to pursue things. I still want to manage our team, and we've got we've got day-to-day duties with our software products. But uh, I, I have had some freedom to be able to go off and do some caggling at the same time trying to trying to be responsible with what I'm learning and leveraging that back to. Uh, to, into the company and sharing knowledge, both internally and externally.
0: Uh, you just mentioned I, I like to call this the on Kaggle versus off Kaggle data science journey. Um, do, do you have any examples of how uh, what you learned on Kaggle uh, impacted or off Kaggle data science work? Did you have any takeaways from any competition that heavily impacted your professional life outside of Kaggle?
1: Uh, well for me it 's easy for me because i mean, i 'm working at a professional software company so i mean literally all the state of the art techniques that I learn on Kaggle have a media bearing on things we 're doing here at sas and we 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 offer a nice we have a nice suite of data science tools uh we we've been reengineering a lot of things to work in the cloud um, and so we have some really and this is across the company my my little group in jump i 've got certain things that i 'm really interested in. For example, Jump is a, a mouse-based product. And I think there's actually still a lot of room for improvement with, you know, let's say you, you get a brand new tabular data set from Kaggle, where do you start? And you know, Anthony was mentioning, we don't want anyone to start with a blinking cursor. Uh, my view is maybe you don't even wanna start in a Python notebook, maybe, maybe, you, maybe it's better. My view is, and, and actually my secret weapon for Kaggle competitions, I open that table up and Jump, and, and do some. I can do some very. And within 10 minutes, I can get a very clear sense of what's going on with the data. Some problems, outliers, already ideas churning for feature engineering. I may run some a little bit of SAS code with things that I know. So to me, that you know, just where do, where does one start when you have a new problem? Uh, I think there's a lot of room there, and I do. I'm actually pretty big on the power of the mouse. And if you think about you know, what little babies, one of the first things you do is point. You know, and that, that, yeah. that paradigm extends right, we now have the cursor. And in fact, my boss, John Saul, recently had an article entitled What's the Point, where he draws a fun analogy with Harry Potter and his wand. You know, he could, Harry Potter can just point that wand at something and magical things start to happen. And that's part of our philosophy with Jump and the, throughout the rest of SAS, where we want to use both the best of coding and uh, writing a uh, well formed code, but there's still power to be, I think, to be tapped into an unta- untapped potential with with the mouse. Awesome.
0: Now, uh, coming back to competitions, uh, do you have any favorite, I like to call them battle stories from any competition? And how have your approach and uh, views on Kaggle evolved as you competed over the f- past few years?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. I think – I mean, I've really enjoyed just every competition I've been in. I guess a lot of the joy comes with teaming. Um, and I, I tend to have – I've had just marvelous teammates tend to be small teams. Um, and you just get to meet – you know, one of my one of my good friends that I've met through Kegel is Dmitry Dimit- Poplavsky. Just a very – he's like a quiet, genius guy. You see him on the street, you wouldn't even notice. But this guy is unbelievably good with, with – <laughs> Python coding, image competitions, and we—I think we just—I think maybe the first one we teamed on was the 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 fisheries competition. You know, where we had the the pictures of the fish uh, from 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 up above, and you had to predict, you had to look at look at images of fish and predict what what kind it was for for tuna and other types of fish. And we teamed on that. We just had such a fun time, you know, exchanging ideas and uh, going back and forth. And then occasionally, with with deadlines approaching, you're scrambling to try to get your last model to fit. And I've had a couple of cases where I've literally made my final submission just like maybe one minute before the deadline. <laughs> uh, so it generates a lot of excitement. And of course, there's always excitement when the when the private leaderboard is revealed. Um, so that kind of thing. I think just overall, just just being being fun. We, uh, Dimitro and I and another g- a good friend who who I haven't got to meet in person, but a great guy, Jonathan, we teamed up on the, the Zillow competition. And that was a lot of fun where we were just, we were engineering features, trying things. And um, and I that when I get around here, I got everybody asking me how much their house is worth now. And I'm like, well, I'll just go to Zillow. You're, I think their <laughs> algorithms improved uh, as a result of the, Kaggle, the, the, the two competitions that they ran. Okay. Uh, you, you're one of the best statisticians,
0: if I may, on earth. Why why do you continue to Kaggle still today?
1: Oh well, I, I don't know if I consider myself w- one. We've got there is a there is there still are kind of these two cultures going on, and I, I I've been trying to kind of bridge between the two, or at least travel. Uh, and and being at a commercial software company is a little bit of an unusual career path for a statistician. Uh, but there is still is a very vibrant, active statistical community with brilliant we've got some very brilliant theoreticians and there's some really nice battles going on now over topics like p-values and the, the classic battle between bayesian and frequented statistics uh, there's a whole a, a broader discussions around reproducibility where in the science literature you know there's a lot of a lot of controversies around reports that don't reproduce and so what and a lot of that some of that some of the heat from that is focused back in on the, on the statistical methods that are used. And I love these, I love, and I do a lot of background reading on some of the foundations. I haven't contributed a lot personally, but I at least try to keep up with what's going on and try to come up with sensible perspectives on that, that we can work into the software. And occasionally I'll give a talk or, or maybe a higher level paper trying to share those. But some of these are really deep, some even deep, deeper philosophical questions about, you know, what, is, what is probability? what you know is it is it a subjective degree of belief is it is it destri- describing real world uh, phenomena there's are there's several other theories around it and a lot of these questions are still kind of open and interesting to pursue uh, and i feel a lot of data scientists are like ah st- statisticians are just concerned with stuff that doesn't really matter that much but i don't really share that i, I think there's still there's a lot of deeper questions in the, the interface between and I, I personally tend to not I tend to think of statistics and data science still as somewhat separate. There's a lot of intersecting that going on now. But uh, at least I know from the statistical community that they don't, they don't view themselves as data scientists. They, <laughs> they may, to a certain degree, they may feel threatened or even jealous sometimes because I, I do think data scientists, they're, they're likely, it's a likely much larger crowd now. Data scientists tend to be much better at selling things. Even terminology, you know, something like, you wanna learn about dark knowledge and deep, deep learning. Whereas a statistician is gonna be like, oh, what's the asymptotic theory of a man whitney u statistic? You know, this could, <laughs> this, this, I think some of that's personality things, uh, but in a way it's all good. And we've got, we're, we're just in this wonderful time now where you know, not just statistics and computer science, but domain expertise, uh, people, you know, people from the physics community, social science, we're all kind of converging on these, this, co- this collection of techniques. And sometimes it goes by the term AI, you know, or, or big data learning, uh, a lot of buzzwords floating around. But in the end, we're trying to solve these, these, these really interesting problems. And we've got all the pieces now, computing, we got the data, the big data, we've got the theory, we've got techniques. So it's just a wonderful time to be working through these and, and solving, solving interesting problems.
0: And like you said, while teaming up, uh, there, there are no boundaries on Kaggle. You could team up with a physicist. You could team up with someone from a different nation, someone even outside of your workforce, and you get access to their brain, their code, which I think is is uh, invaluable, that aspect that Kaggle I,
1: allows. I know, and there's that. I love this principle. You know, I mean, almost every Kaggle competition, you need to build an ensemble typically to get that little extra edge. So there's power and diversity. And I love the, the analogy with humans, you know, when you're building a team, to me, it's about, you're often better to have a diverse team instead of, you know, if I were going to team with someone, I don't want another, I don't want another PhD in applied statistics that went in, you know, that kind of had a similar path to me. I want someone totally, you know, coming at it from a, a totally different angle. And that's where you can often make progress. And it's, it's the same principle with ensemble you know, you don't, you ensemble two models that are very similar, you're likely not going to get much of a boost. But if you take two, you know, take a boosted tree and a neural network on a tabular data, almost guaranteed you ensemble them. If they're both pretty reasonable, you're going to get better results.
0: Uh, What advice do you have or what tips do you have for beginners who would like to team up? uh, And uh, what's your strategy for teaming up uh, on Kaggle?
1: You, you do want to th- put some thought into it, because unfortunately, there are, there are some, you know, quote unquote, cheaters. And if you, you know, Kaggle's pretty strict about it. Yeah. If you team up with someone that's broken the rules, you're going to get disqualified along with them. And that, fortunately, that's never happened with me, but it has, it has happened with several of my friends. So you got to be careful. And I, I don't know. It's, I mean, it sounds crazy. I guess everyone does this, but if I got someone that I don't know. I'll try to do my own little background check, you know, maybe they're on they got a Facebook page or a LinkedIn page, check them out, what's their background, you know, try to get some sense of where they're coming from, just to make sure that you've got a good team uh teammate and then there's kind of also that unwritten rule where you you tend to want a team with someone that's roughly the same place as you on the leaderboard. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's not always the best, and obviously it's if you can team up with a with another grandmaster that 's often a really good experience and a lot a lot of a lot of g m s are very open to doing that and there there's some very sharp cagglers who, who have they, they don't have the, the points yet, but they 're probably just a, i mean in a way they're likely better than anyone that's kind of a, a quote unquote grandmaster so those are the, those are the folks if you can find them and I think that there's a lot of these quiet geniuses out there like Demetro. and if you can you can find one I I team up with them in a heartbeat.
0: Okay. Uh, Now, talking about competitions, uh, how do you approach a new problem and what pipeline? uh, Maybe it it might be a general one or specific to any competition, if you could tell us what pipeline do you use while working on a competition?
1: Yeah, uh, pipeline. To me, well, maybe I'm naive about this, but to me, the very obvious first thing is what kind of data is it? You know, and I tend to th- definitely make the initial big distinction between tabular data and then image data versus you know maybe if you want to have a third category, maybe signal or audio processing and then nat- natural language. I tend to view those as very quite distinct domains that would have their own their own pipelines. And then some of the competitions you got, you've got multiple types of data, so you have to kind of have multiple pipelines feeding in. I and mean, again, I'm most comfortable with tabular data. My secret trick for tabular data: just open it up and Jump and start playing around. <laughs> that, that, and that, that's not a con, and we don't really promote Jump as a data science tool, but man, it's so it's so much fun and easy. And uh, you can just it's very satisfying to quickly get in there and see what's going on with the data set. Now with image data, I mean, there's no substitute for look you know looking at the data. Just literally, like take a look at some of the images and maybe have ways of scrolling through a lot of them quickly, trying to see what kind of variety you've got, you know, maybe compute some summary statistics on each image, and then you can maybe convert, If you can convert the image or, or NLP data into statistics. Now you're back into the tabular domain, then you can load those into Jump. Uh, and again, I hope, I hope that doesn't come across too well, but, it, you know, Jump or any kind of Facility like that, where you can quickly take a look at the data and do things like distribution, scatter plots, maybe run some quick regressions, try a couple quick models just to see what's going on, that kind of thing. That's what I tend to do. And then the hard part really comes in where, typically, especially with tabular data, you've got to be able to do really smart feature engineering, and that, that's that's hard work. You're just not gonna. There there are the auto ML routines which can they, sometimes they can come up with some decent stuff. They'll get you part ways, but then there's no substitute for just really thinking hard about the problem. You know, what are you, what are you trying to predict? What's like, what's, what's the underlying data generating process that's going on. And I, also, and I will also put some time into thinking about how was the data created? And this is where a lot of the leak, you know, you gotta look, you gotta go for Kaggle. You have to check for leaks. And they do, they do come up Even in spite Kaggle does a pretty good job. I think of, of, of eliminating those they still pop up in spite of everyone's best efforts and that can make sometimes that can even kind of ruin a competition to a certain <laughs> degree or at least change the dynamics because if you don't find the leak the leak phenomenon or structure you're, you're not going to get anywhere in turn, on the leaderboard so you've got to have some tricks for that there's kind of this whole bag of tricks that over time you start to develop and work on um and so i, I don't know that's that's probably about as clear of a pipeline I don't have any I don't have any real strict one it's more let's get in there there's no substitute for look a lot of people I think just want to quickly just start fitting a neural network you know throw and they don't even look at the data yeah and so you can you can get you can get sideswiped by outliers and other weird aspects of the data if you just try to naively jump directly into modeling. It's called
0: data science for a good reason.
1: <laughs> that's right. It is, and that's where the science comes in. You kind of have the mind of a scientist, inquisitive. And then, of course, you do have to set up. You're, you're always in the back of your mind coming up with some kind of scheme for cross for validation and cross validation. You, you do not want to rely on the Kaggle public leaderboard to as your only source of assessing models and techniques. That's a that's a recipe that's a recipe for disappointment for sure. Uh, so you've got to come up you've got to come up with a good internal cross validation framework. And there, you know, the basic place to start would be k-fold. But then if it and if it's time series, typically you want to forecast into the future. So there you might just do a single a single uh, set into the future It's often a good way. Or maybe several several different schemes is often a good thing. Not to, not just rely on one cross validation scheme, but have several that you can do just depending on how big the data are and how much time you have.
0: I also want to ask you this naive question. Uh, maybe uh, base on, base it on terms of your recent goal finish on the NFL Big Data Bowl competition, but what does it take to win a gold medal in a competition? What decision making or efforts for anyone who's aspiring to become a Grandmaster someday?
1: Yeah. And that is, I think that probably is the getting that solo gold competition. That's probably maybe the one of the most difficult things with Kaggle. I happen to get lucky. Like I said, I think I was early you know. And the problem is it's getting tougher and tougher all the time. Right. Cause there's more sharper people on there. I think you've got to be, you got to be smart about which competition you choose. You know, try if you if your goal is to get a solo gold, first thing is you got to filter those competitions and make sure it's one where you feel like you can you can come up with an edge somewhere and it may might, or at least be able to learn to learn during the competition where you can get there and then so it sh- and it also should be maybe if, you, if it happens to be a domain where you have some extra expertise external uh, expertise that's a, that can be very valuable there've been certain competitions like for example there was one on fi- you know physics and chemistry recently or if you've got that kind of background, uh, you know that that's a natural one to go for because you because these you know understanding of the underlying problem can really be helpful in engineering features, and then just just it often comes down to feature and network engineering, um, and so you just have to and I try sometimes I will try like literally uh, try to sense if you're getting stuck in a rut and be willing almost in a sense to back completely up and almost start over or go in a new direction. Because I think all of us just tend to, the problem can be intriguing enough that maybe you're making slow progress on a certain path, but then you inevitably are gonna like hit a hit a wall and just yeah. not be able to get any further. And if you can somehow just almost just kind of like reboot, you know, and almost try to go, just just start from a different point and go, and, and the, the beauty of that is you haven't lost anything and you can often come up with a second model that you can then ensemble and then boom, you know, you've just leveraged your way up. Uh, so it's almost like, you know, if you're gonna go solo but you're, you wanna become a little bit schizophrenic, you know, and have, have make, make up your own team uh, within your own mind and have different models. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's, the way, that's the way I would tend to approach it.
0: Awesome, but I'd, I'd also say that for anyone, uh, please don't be misled by just becoming a Grandmaster, even if you're close to that or even if you're producing good models. I think, I think that's a great takeaway for applying it to real data
1: science. That's right, and you do wanna keep it in, I mean, becoming a Kaggle Grandmaster, I mean, it's a, it's a nice honor, but it's not, it's not the be all end all. I mean, there's much, in a way, there's much more important things in life and problems to pursue. Um, and so, it's, it's, if you can keep it in balance, I do think if you if you if you stick with it, it, it will happen. You know, you just kind of just be steady. Don't don't get don't freak out. And there's definitely going to be a lot of disappointments along the way. But just stick to your guns. Learn every every competition is a chance to learn and get better. And then at some moment, I think there's a right now there's enough rich variety of competitions where I, I do think it's achievable. Uh, I know. I think it was two years ago. I did the, There was one on the on the power lines. You remember that one? Uh, it was the VSB. Or VSB. Like that. Yes. Yeah. And I, I did that one. I was like, for that particular one, I was like, I was asking myself, can I get a solo gold still? You know, even <laughs> though it was a couple of years since I got my first one. So that was kind of my goal. And I did. I kind of, like I said, got got a little bit schizo on myself and tried some things, and I was able to pull it off. Even though that that competition was a little bit weird. There were some uh, unusual things, but I was able to kind of that one. It was really important to have a nice cross validation strategy because there was a little bit of there was definitely some shake up, and so um, I, th- I think it's doable. But you just have to be you got to be in a sense disciplined and and be very careful with your time. You know, because like I said, we all have a limited amount of time, so you got to use it as wisely as you possibly can.
0: Definitely. Uh, what's your take on the now? That's a opinion that's coming up in the public that Kaggle is not equal to real-world data science. And uh, do you think there's any aspect that uh, someone who's very active on Kaggle might miss out who's trying to seek a career in data science? And how how can they uh, build a surrogate for that?
1: Yeah, I, I think most of that's a bu- you know a bunch of malarkey, basically. The only the only the only people I would listen to is someone that's actually got in there and competed in Kaggle. And done pretty well. If yeah. there was a grandmaster, you don't really hear any. You don't hear any Kaggle grandmasters or masters making those kind of claims. Yeah. we we know how valuable of a resource it is, um, and I think it's it's human nature. If, if you're if you decide not to do something, that might be important, you tend to want to minimize it or put it into a box. <laughs> I think I just it, we all do that, right? I mean, some there's a lot of fields that I'm really interested in, but haven't had the time to explore. And just, it's a natural tendency to want to make a, some kind of simplifying assumption or, or maybe knock it down a little bit and make it not as important. Just, and I think it's again, it's just human nature. So I tend to discount any claims like that. And just the simple fact, look at the sponsors of the competitions. These are not just some crazy, uh, you know, off the wall, we got big, important companies financial from all different domains, sports, um, you know, finance. Zillow places like that. I mean, they, they are making direct business decisions to invest, you know, serious time and money in the Kaggle yeah. in a Kaggle competition. They wouldn't be these are, I mean, they wouldn't be doing that if there wasn't value to them. And it's it's just, a, it's a pretty amazing, you know, if you think about it, it's a pretty amazing community that's that's developed around it. So um, I, I don't put any weight in those, those, those naysayers. <laughs> And
0: uh, what's the aspect that do you think that a beginner might miss out uh, that they can uh, and that they might miss out by being active on Kaggle and how can they uh, uh, build a substitute for it?
1: Yeah. And again, this is, everyone's a little bit different. I'm not sure I can give perfectly general advice, but obviously you've got, you know, you've got your core, your core values that that you're looking to develop and you've got your own life situation. Um, and maybe you've got a family to support or you're looking to build your career. So all these things in a way have, a, have bearing on how active you might wanna be with Kaggle. You wanna view it as a really good resource, but be careful about not getting you know, over consumed with it. But if it's, if it's a way to kind of, especially if you can find Kaggle competitions that align well with your personal objectives, or maybe maybe you're doing a research problem in school, like I think one of the physics ones one of the winners was actually a PhD student in in astrophysics or whatever. I mean, that's like a perp, right. That's a perfect setup for a Kaggle yeah. competition for them. That doesn't happen too often. Uh, but if you can kind of stay active and kind of keep an eye on what's going on, you can usually find ones that are complementary to your goals and try to do that. The way that way things are lining up and you're kind of accomplishing multiple things at once rather than just jumping on every little every Kaggle competition that you might happen to see.
0: Awesome. Now I want to zoom out and go back to another topic of software development. You've been involved, uh, involved in it for over a few years. What was software development like in the early 90s? And what's been your favorite development in
1: uh,
0: all of these years in, in terms of software development?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, man, and I I probably am happiest when I'm writing code. I just like Lee, Lee Wilkinson mentioned, I think we, we we kind of share a similar spirit that we just love. <laughs> just so much fun to write software and spe- especially being able to write software that's going to help others. That's just like that's that, that's probably one of the most core, satis- you know, satisfying drives that, that one has. And software is pretty amazing, right? We could write it, you can send it out for free uh, or distribute it around the world. There's no cost to literally zero cost to the sending it. So, and we've got techniques and infrastructures now for doing that. Uh, In in a way though, like when I first started here at SAS, I was, we wrote a lot of our original routines in C and I worked, we had a, we had, I actually worked in in this nice kind of tricked out Emacs environment where I had my C code on one side and, SAS output in another and i work on some code compile it run it and um in a way that had that 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 basic paradigm hasn't changed too much i do i do a lot of coding that i've been doing some more coding recently in c++ and then of course SAS is also a language and jump also has its own language jsl and if you're going to be on kaggle pipe you know you pretty much need to know python or r um and so i think those code you know Software development now is, is changing to a certain degree. And of course, we've had the explosion of open source, which is, you know, we, you know, talk about competition, the, the, the whole landscape has changed. I think, I feel like for us as a commercial software vendor, we've gotta be on our toes now and aware of, of these big trends. And you got the big players like Facebook and Google dumping out super high quality code into the public domain. And we, we, we wanna take advantage of that actually when we can. And it's the responsibility is on us to make sure that our software is still, you know, we we, we do, we do, it is commercial software. So we do charge a licensing fee for, it, but we want to make sure that that fee is worth it. And we, we feel like it is. Um, and you know, no software is free, even though, you know, there, there are what we call them, maybe open source zealots that claim that all software should be free for everybody. <laughs> and I think that's, it starts to get to be ridiculous if you kind of work through the logical implications of that. Um, We've been fortunate, you know, relatively worldwide, you know, overall fairly prosperous worldwide economy and and big companies that are able to fund nice huge open source initiatives. So there's kind of this interesting cycle of feedback between commercial companies and the open source community. I think it benefits everybody if we can do it correctly. And of course there will be some disagreements about exactly what, you know, what, how things should be promoted or whatever. But overall, it's just, it's a pretty incredible time we're in. And, uh, you know, the techniques we've got are just really fantastic.
0: Leland also mentioned this, people often miss out that open source uh, isn't free in the sense that someone is paying the coders to write the code, or maybe they're earning from somewhere else that gives them the leverage to be able to contribute to open source. So many people do miss out on that aspect.
1: I know, I know. Yeah, And it's it's, it's nice. And I, I mean, I love open source. I use it all the time. Um, and, you know, one, one nice little story with Lee, he wrote, um, this was, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, Lee had written, um, we all know, you know, Venn diagrams, right? Um, yeah. He had, read, he had written some nice Java code for doing proportional area Venns where the size of the circle corresponds to the size of that set. And it turns out that creating that a diagram, a proportional area Venn diagram is a non-trivial problem in fact, there are certain configurations where it's impossible, but you can, you can get a best approximation. Well, Lee had written some Java code to, to solve the problem and he had a nice paper and he was looking for an outlet for it. And it turned out right near the same time, I was working on an, a jump add-in to, to draw the Venn diagrams. And Lee, just, it was a beautiful collaboration. He's like, hey, why don't you just take our Java code, uh, you know, lo- load it in, and then we can distribute all this out there for free. And we did it. It was, a, you know, that was one of a. To me, it's just a really nice story where he was he was willing enough to share that code openly, um, and then I shared our add-in. Even though you need you need Jump to run it, but usually you can get your hands on that fairly fairly readily. So just a nice example of a, of someone like Lee being just open-hearted, sharing the code. And there's a many a, a bunch of people have used that add-in and complimented complimented us on the functionality and we we acknowledge them, you know, and all that all that in there. So I just think that that's the kind of example of the kind of things that that really are possible, and can really make a positive impact on on the community.
0: Uh, How do you feel about the part that uh, things that maybe you studied during your PhD days can now be done in a single line of code? Do, Do you feel salty about that?
1: Well, <laughs> you, can always write a, you can always write a function around and make it reduce anything to one line. Right? So I don't know if that does any good. I mean, there, we have made progress certainly in the way we think about data analysis and like there's still big problems about how do you approach a problem? What are the most important aspects? What other things can, can go away? And I don't know that, you know, counting lines of code can get a little bit off balance if that's your only metric. Um, so, but certainly the real question is what what's like a language like python you know what's the proper scope for functions yeah. you know how much should a a good python function do for you how much should it require you to set up around it that's all that's difficult but I, I do feel like python seems to have struck a nice chord with the community now and it's it's been pretty amazing to see its popularity rise i mean ours also got really strong tradition all the way back to Bell Labs and some really incredibly intelligent statisticians and other related folks who had the original S language and it kind of morphed into R. And it's got its own paradigm too with many interesting factors in SAS. We've actually, the SAS language actually was a, you know, you hear about online learning, you know, with with data kind of streaming in that 's actually the design of the SAS data step back in the 1970s which a lot of people don 't even realize um, and I, I kind of t- have taken it for granted, but you kind of look at it 's like oh so there are <laughs> there are things that, that we 've learned that are kind of they get reinvented in other terms, so it 's fun to see that happen and it tends to validate concepts that get reinvented tend to be tend to be strong ones that we want to pay attention to, and even though they may ha- go under different languages or have slightly different variations, they tend to be the, the things that advance the field
0: okay now talking about another field that you have been enrolled over the years uh, what has been your favorite development in uh, stats and uh, how have you seen the hype change over the years uh, for statistics
1: yeah i, I don't know it's it, it, we're in this weird time now, like I said and i think I think statisticians are feeling they're like man th- they they're kind of giving i think for many years they did they didn't really respect to us if i could use that it's kind of a strong word but they, they kind of just felt like the, the data scientists were just they were doing silly things they were just building these big predictive models but now i think there's i think there's mutual respect that have, that have, that's been developed and increased and like some of the, some of our most brilliant statisticians like the guys in the stanford from the stanford department tip Shirani and hasty brad efron Those guys have, have, I think they were the original pioneers of kind of building this bridge between the two communities. And even things like boosted trees, you know, we've got Leo Bryman and Jerome Friedman who kind of came up with the original theory. But then it took the University of Washington group to kind of finally get it all coded in a nice open source framework that exploded. Uh, So we get these these things happening. but it's, I mean, for me personally, I still feel like there's some tensions there, which, which I'd like to over time maybe try to alleviate. I actually, I don't mind kind of living in between the two worlds because it's kind of, I feel like it's a, rich, it's a rich area for research and there's a lot of really intriguing problems that come up. And the, you got to admit, the data science community is a lot of fun. You know, we're we're on some Slack channels and stuff, and mixing it up with some silly, silly silliness. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that that's the kind of thing that makes life and and you know, day to day life a lot of really enjoyable. Um, and and there there's, there's those kind of things in the in the stat world as well. I and mean, statisticians we t- we do tend to be very geeky and nerdy and stuff too. Probably maybe not quite as much as the as the or. We tend to be more so than the data science guys. So, (laughs) I guess geeks are going to take over the world, you know, eventually, anyway. So, why not?
0: Talking about life uh, more generally, you're also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert. Uh, How do you find the time and balance for all, all of these amazing things that you're active across?
1: Oh, oh yeah! Thanks for getting that up. I actually, I actually haven't been I haven't been training in BJJ for several years now, and I'm okay. pretty much out of shape and, and fat. But oh no, I take that back. I'm in a bulk, I'm in a bulking phase right now. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but I really there's actually and you know, I've always been a, a pretty com, I've I've done competitive different sports and competed in different things like BJJ over the years. Uh, and I find there's I, I love competition. That's actually kind of one of the attractive things for Kaggle, You know, it's kind of a different form, but the BJJ world is really amazing. Just some of my some some of the best guys I think I've ever met. Um, not to mention those are the guys you want with you if you're walking through a city street somewhere. Um, but um, there's a lot of parallels with with lear- like learning BJJ. It's a pretty am- amazing art. Where uh, I don't think a lot of, for people that aren't familiar, it it involves no striking, and it's also designed for a, a weaker, strong, uh, you know, smaller opponent to be able to handle someone bigger and stronger. And to me, those are really appealing aspects. Because so I don't really, I'm not interested in punching somebody really, nor do I, I've got a lot invested right here. Don't wanna get punched. Um, but so it's, it's, it's a grappling art, but it's a lot, it's very technical and it's been described sometimes even as human chess. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like, there's actually a whole, and when I was into it, I would spend a lot of time on, on, my, on it. There's a lot, of, a lot of people are putting out videos and content on different new different moves and systems that you can use. And there's a whole really competitive framework. And then of course, BJJ is one of the key components of all the mixed martial arts fighters of these days. Now there, you've gotta got be able to punch there, obviously. But then <laughs> I actually, when I watch, I do watch some MMA fights sometimes and I actually, contrary, I think most fans, I actually like it when they go to the ground because there's a whole, when they, when they get on the ground, there's a whole new dynamic of leverage and techniques that you have to follow and if you don't if you don't understand those principles you're going to get you're going to you're going to get messed up pretty quickly Um, but I do like and I I do still follow a little bit and I've got in my basement I've got a mat I'll go down there and do some drills a little bit myself and maybe one of these days I'll get back into it but I I love I got there's a really nice BJJ community here in the Raleigh area and some of the best guys I've ever met a few of them are a little bit rough around the edges, but, but I, those, are, those are guys I'd much rather hang out with than, than, than some other crowds.
0: <laughs> I, I think it's, it's also analogous to uh, being competitive. Anywhere, if you're down on the ground and you start just throwing your fits around, that's not going to help you as much as keeping you calm and putting in technique. And this applies even outside of just professional fights, I think.
1: I know. Think about it. Like, you know, when something goes poorly on your Kaggle competition, you just tend to win a you know, you just tend to flail around and do stupid things where Control it, delete, down, reset. <laughs> I, I know. So there's all these really interesting, to me, really interesting parallels amongst human, you know, human competition. And this applies, you know, not only we're talking about data science competition, sports, but we're talking in the business world, and even uh, more importantly, maybe even across the political world where we've got really difficult uh, conflicts and issues where I think, yep. you know, being being level headed and learning how to do the data science well can, who knows, I mean, a data scientist, I, I feel like as data scientists, we, we may be holding, the, you know, some of the strongest keys to the future and, and be in a very strong and important position of responsibility. And we need to accept that and realize it and make sure that we can develop good techniques for handling problems and be good, being good, good solvers of, of them.
0: For sure. Uh, what do you foresee for the future of uh, data science and statistics, broadly speaking?
1: Oh, who knows? It's got, I mean, it's just going to be at the, I feel it's going to be kind of at the epicenter of, you know, of things for the next several decades, probably. We're just in this period now where we've got data flowing in from everywhere. Anyone that's going to be a serious player has to be, has to have some quantitative skills to be able to interpret data that's coming their way. And this is, I mean, pretty much this name, any discipline you can think about. Everyone's got data now. You've gotta be able to handle it. You gotta be able to think. And I I do think there are some differences in philosophy between say straight predictive modeling versus what I consider maybe more general statistical thinking, uh, which I tend to view the latter as maybe a little more broad and more targeted towards problem solving. So those kind of skills to be able to think statistically. And we've got some, uh, JUMP actually has some new materials around that uh i think those kind of skills are going to be super valuable and important into the future it's hard to predict exactly where things are going to go you know because we, we get you know the breakthroughs happen in jumps yeah and we've got amazing things now like self-driving cars and all these ai reinforcement learning things that are happening and i think dimitro said he's been flying he's been flying some of the drones through through these race courses and stuff so i mean that could think about that alone could could impact the modern you know how how the next if there is a war that breaks out that's going to be at the heart of it so I hope it doesn't come to that we've just enjoyed a a relatively reasonable time of peace but there's still these I worry there's tensions growing across the world even within the U.S. we're we're pretty you know we're split politically and we've got an election coming up later this year so I hope we can be sensible about it and, and move forward
0: I think there's a flip side also, maybe data science will become so normal, uh, similar to websites now. No one thinks of rockstar website developers, websites are there you surfing the web without even realizing that, hey, maybe someone put in a lot of effort towards uh, how good this looks on your phone.
1: I know, I know. Yeah, there's all these questions like that. And I think that's great to observe that. And we, we need to all I think every data scientist needs to You know, even though we get so in love, like the problems like Kaggle, we need to kind of focus out and realize where we are in the world and actually the positions of responsibility that we hold, even though, you know, maybe you're just a lowly data scientist in some company doing something, it turns out you, you may be the key to to that company's, you know, doing the right thing. And actually, you may have a better understanding of certain key problems than anyone else in the whole company. So, you know, take advantage of it.
0: Okay. Now, this has been a great interview. Uh, if you were to give one best advice for someone who's just starting their journey in the world of uh, data science or Kaggle, what would that be?
1: Um, yeah, and I, I've actually been thinking about this a little bit. I, was thinking, I think maybe the starting point is a little bit of time of self-reflection. And I think I, I get on my kids... Uh, about they just get so distracted, you know, they get in the car and they just turn up the radio and then they've got their texts going and friends and they never, have, they never often don't take the time just to get, find a quiet moment. Maybe even when you're drifting off to sleep, just think about your own personal values and your you know, purpose, things like that. Just get your life kind of a, uh, aligned. And then from there, kind of see how data science might apply to that. And again, looping back to what we mentioned early on about problem solving, you know, f- goodness knows we've got immense number of problems in our world and we need more people to solve, we need more problem solvers than we do de- de- anyone creating problems. So take a problem-solving mindset, fi- find a problem that's interesting and passionate to you and go, you know, go and then use, pull all the data science tools together to help solve that problem. And in a way, I th- I like, that's what I like about Kaggle. It kind of compresses that into nice little three-month or six-month time periods where you can do exercise that but then the, the important thing from there would be to go and tackle something really big and important you know where you live um, which reminds me if you don't mind I wanted to ask you uh, Sam I was interested I saw in on Kaggle I think they did some demographic statistics on the and the typical Kaggler was like an I think a 26 year old Indian male <laughs> and I, I, I guess you're a little bit younger than that maybe but uh, what I was curious what what do you see in maybe you would be willing to comment, what do you see the future of data science being like in India? And what's what's the scene like there now?
0: I think I think I'd be a bad person to answer this. Uh, I, I don't look 22, but I'm 22. Uh, and I used to freelance a lot overseas because I used to lack the right amount of opportunities that trust me. But I think that's definitely changing now. Uh, we h2o.ai has their headquarters in Chennai in India. That's the Indian headquarters. And we also have a lot of companies from overseas establishing their offices in India, starting their data science teams. Of course, the startup scene is pretty big in our, we call it the Silicon Valley of India, Bangalore. And I think that that reflects on Kaggle as well. There's, there's this shared uh, enthusiasm of of data science of tech on Kaggle. We India is India has a large population. And that also means we have a large number of CS engineers or software engineers and all, all of them Try to uh, are trying to learn about uh, data science, they they go, definitely go to Kaggle, which I think, again, speaks of uh, Kaggle's greatness that it's also empowering a large portion of our country to get into the field.
1: No, I really, I really like that. Thank you for that perspective. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. We've got, I just think this night, the 2020s are just going to be, I think they're going to be pretty incredible. Uh, so I'm excited to see how it's going to play out.
0: I hope the scene gets better. We're definitely not there. I think we're much behind uh, the states, for example, compared to the number of opportunities. But I think I, I personally try to contribute a lot to the community. And I say this, not to brag, but to maybe inspire other people to start communities, try to talk to your friends in in the Silicon Valley, bring their culture back to India. That's what I'll be doing next one, visiting the Valley, attending as many meetups, trying to bring back that culture just because I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford that. so I, I hope that changes in the future and I, I think it will.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thank, And thank you for putting on this podcast. I think it is a real service uh, to the community and uh, best wishes uh, for, for future success with it.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks so much for saying yes. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Sanyam. Sanyam.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, Please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.